like to respond to questions on people's direct experience, first of all. If our inside energy is too strong to control, as a yogi, what should we do? About five years ago, the dense and heavy energy started staying on the heart. Heart wheel occasionally caused me short breath, rapid heartbeats and fatigue. But after I practiced mindfulness of mind, the situation improved. Energy not as dense as before sometimes dominate the bodily actions what is causing this condition dense and heavy energy well I don't know uh, but energy is a mysterious medium sometimes associated with sense desire things get quite heavy uh, sensuality tends to has got a clogging effect doesn't mean anything evil, it just means one's kind of normal involvement with the sense world is relatively coarse compared with the subtler realm. So, um, and but then maybe you don't need to know why, you just need to know how to, it's, it's stressful, uncomfortable, and um, how to move it, how to respond to that. Mm. Mindfulness of jitta seems to be important for you. Um, moderating it, calming it. Um, and uh, I think, you know, body meditations. So you get a sense of working the jitta, expanding it subtly through awareness, widening your sphere of attention, bringing up positive heart energies. You know, so you're going to mix. Uh, so it's not just purely what we think body is about, but it's jitta, so those heart energies, warm-heartedness, brightness, energy, pity, rapture, ease. And these can help to ameliorate the weight that jitta accumulates in the sense world. The question, when I manage to touch and rest in quiet space, I feel the boundaries of the body acutely. The experience of space becomes so aware of the container it's in. The sensitive space that opens around the heart starts to feel overwhelmed by the limitations of pulse and lung capacity. I start to feel trapped, claustrophobic. Is jitter restricted by the body? It can be, but it doesn't have to be. Because uh, um, it's a matter of, you know, calming the um, sensitivity. So, you know, like if you go into that quality of space, uh, that's okay, that's fine. But it, it can also be slightly imbalanced. Yeah, in that you're getting too much involved with, with space and therefore form feels kind of has a has a heavy effect. Really want to permeate is the mode. And like it's a gentle suffusion because 
or the experience of pulse and lungs that arises within the chitta. Your experience of it arises within the chitta. The chitta experiences the effects of pulse and lungs, the feeling of it. So that feeling, that quality of felt being touched has to be gently calm, softened, and you can even imagine breathing through these apparent um, veils or boundaries. <clears throat> so someone asked about self. You know, is this jitter some kind of, sounds like a self to me. Um, I wonder what a self is how one would define a self. It generally means it's always in opposition to something other than that. So I'm me and you're you. This is myself, that's you. Um, so it's, uh, this is my body, that's the space around me. This, Therefore I am this. Mm. So self-experience self always means self and other. It's a dualism. And with jitta we're beginning to not uh, recognize these, these boundaries and begin to permeate them so that there's a sense of not being limited into a particular um, place in the body or even an attitude in the mind. The mind, the mind that, that becomes more radiant doesn't have other in it. Uh, so self also implies um, ownership, the sense of holding, Something is mine, it's held. Uh, well, the purpose of training is to release that. Um, self generally has some sort of apparent ownership. And of course, of course, we don't own anything. You know, we, as the, the ownership thing is a bit of an illusion. Ownership just means a repeated fixation or repeated clinging. We, we can't own things, <laughs> really. <laughs> we just cling. Uh, there's clinging. So once we begin to be aware of that and begin to release that clinging, so clinging to possessions, clinging to a body, clinging to feeling, clinging to perceptions. And the clinging is a kind of is one of the ways in which self is experienced. This is mine. Not necessarily even pleasant experiences. You know, some of the clinging is a kind of defensive. You know, I don't want to be that. But with practice, we're overcoming our fear of otherness, our defensiveness, our holding on to particular aspects and permeating, suffusing, so that the differentiations begin to fade out. No differentiations, you can't really make as much of an entity out of it, self out of it. Um, self also imagines it has control an agency, I will make something happen. I'm a potent person, I can make things happen. I'm in charge. And meditation begins to disabuse you of that notion, since one can sometimes barely control one's own thoughts, if at all. So, who's in charge? Yeah. So, we realise that... Uh, there's a certain degree of agency in chitta, but it's, it's an agency that brings forth not so much control 
as as relational moderation, right? You know, moderating the relationship to experiences. We're not pushing things around. We're making peace with them, coming to terms with them, uh, relaxing them, uh, suffusing them, disarming things. And that occurs not through some kind of um, self-making it happen. It's just the more one touches into the potency of chitta, it begins to expand. It meets these uh, things we don't like and things we want to, and it begins to, you know, disarm them because they don't. Mm, when the jitter is, is has that power, strength to it, the things we dislike does doesn't affect it. You know, it doesn't affect it. Unpleasant feeling can be known. Doesn't have to kill you. Unpleasant feeling is part of what happens. But it doesn't, you can be aware of it. You don't have to kind of get stressed by it. Because it arises within jitter, just expands and accepts the presence of unpleasant feeling. It's best clearly. I mean, this is this is the you know the full full development. But that's what we begin to uh, bear in mind the possibilities of and practice with. The body can be pretty uncomfortable at times, um, but uh, you know you recognise around bodily discomfort. There's always a you know attention to not have to, to try to you know defend oneself from it and um, more skillful practice is to widen one's awareness to include things that are not so not so unpleasant not so intense and then from that wider field of awareness which could be even bigger than your body but space around you also maybe just begin to relax some of the defending and agitation Mm. we can we can't avoid physical pain but we can perhaps diminish the psychological misery and stress that occurs So eventually we don't really have much we don't have control apart from you know abiding in jitta. Uh, I don't know what kind of self that would be, but you know it's not it's not an identity, it has no specific gender or name or history. It doesn't work in terms of history. You know, history wraps itself around it. You know, memories occur, rise within it. Um, names and definitions arise within it. Um, you can't see, you can't find the beginning of it or the end of it. So it's not really a time-bound experience. What it is bound by, it gets bound by, is its own you know, karmic inclinations. And that's what self is. So there is a certain 
you know, relevance because anything that's subjective would seem to be myself. Chitta's subjective. But the self is something you can witness, which is the karmic tendencies. It's not really itself isn't an entity either. It's a collection of karmic dispositions, habits, patterns, memories, that. And we can be aware of that and not clamour around it and not agitate around it and not get reactive around it. Then there's a stepping out of that, that boundary of self. So somebody asks, when the person dies, where did a jitta go? He's lost a friend. Difficult to say, really. I mean, depends on our own, um, that person's <coughs> cultivation. Yeah. Um, the Buddha very much would encourage people on their deathbeds, or his disciples would encourage people on their deathbeds to recollect their virtues, to bring up, return to their, the purity of the citta, or the degree of it, and linger in that, and then you go out, you go out with that. And he says, where it goes out, it goes to to where it, what it's sitting in. So if it's sitting in a quality of brightness and purity, that's where it goes. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think. Well, so we tend to think we tend to always use the map of the sensory world, the sense world, and that kind of consciousness to try to define places. I always say, is it? Does it go to? Does it go to Tunisia? No. Does it go to? <laughs> does it go to? <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work like that because the sense world, Tunisia doesn't really operate in the sense world. It goes to what psychological domains you might say is perhaps more useful. It goes to the bright place uh, with an element of clinging or residual clinging, which can be the clinging to to embodiment to having a body, so then it will return into a body, but perhaps with a bright disposition. So, where does she go? Um, Buddha said, when when the fire goes out, where does it go? When the wind stops blowing, where where does it go on? It's not... How can you direct your wishes towards her? Well, you know how to do that. Just bear in mind, you can do ritual. Ritual is a good way to solemnize uh, the memory of someone. You remember them, you think of them, you have a place where you go and you express goodwill wishes. Um, You can dedicate actions on that person's behalf. And there's a healing of that sense of separation because you're definitely connecting, not just as a thought, but you're connecting with a particular thing you do. It's just going somewhere and sitting and remembering, you know. And so this is, you sort of bring something up like that. But bear in mind, there's all kinds of texts and things that, talk about it but you know and I would think I think there's some credence in that 
but we don't, you know, if we look at it honestly, what do you know? What do you really know through direct experience? And maybe what you know from direct experience is it's going to be based upon this life trajectory. You know, what kind of, where were that person's inclinations? That's where she's going. You know, because you could see it happening now. Where that person's inclinations were, where was her centre, what was her, her main abiding, what was the quality of that? Particularly in the last days. That's the evidence you have. And you can then very likely imagine, well, that's what she was, that's where she was psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, however you want to put it. That's as good a clue you're going to get as to where she's going, right? And if you want to meet her, you should go to that same place, right? If she went to Tunisia, go to Tunisia. But if she went to somewhere blessed and beautiful, you better go there. That's where she was. That's where she was hanging out. That's where you meet her. <laughs> Except, yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a place in the heart. It won't be a physical place. And then it helps this sense of disorientation that can occur. So those questions on engagement and disengagement, because these are and withdrawal. I know these can be quite evocative terms, people are always withdrawing and leaving, you know, abandoning responsibilities or, you know, letting go of the richness of life. Uh, and uh, you have to just kind of really explore the, the experience because uh, uh, it's really just, um, it's not, the words don't quite do it. <laughs> and so, one aspect of withdrawing from engagement and entanglement with the phenomena and drama of life. Can this be done <laughs> in a way in which we don't lose out on any of the richness and details of the experience of being human in the world? <laughs> I want it both ways. <laughs> so this person's asking, particularly in reference to art and painting, we want to represent the complexity, detail, tone and drama of human experience. I suppose it's similar for writing or making movies and music. Mm. Expressing the pain and beauty of the human experience that makes for work is meaningful for other humans. Would withdrawing make for boring, detached art? Mm. I, don't, I don't think so. Um, what do you mean by art? I think the Buddha was a great artist. Uh, uh, he didn't use paint. But he didn't, didn't carry his easel around with him. But he painted extremely beautiful uh, portrayals of the human predicament in words, uh, uh, figures of speech, metaphors. Um, and it's clear that he'd, he'd witnessed. You look in the hundreds of species he plants and animals he mentions. He refers to craftsmen, silversmiths. He has all these metaphors. He obviously looked around and saw what was going on and picked it up to use it to weave his teachings into, into, into forms that people could, could um, assimilate 
all kinds of jackals and donkeys and crows and lions and elephants and cows in his suitors. <laughs> it's full of them, you know. And some of them are very comical too. <laughs> uh, uh, broken pots and you know dung heaps. Some of it's pretty intense. Uh, and then the various dialogues you can find where the some Brahmin throws a verse at him and Buddha responds with 15 verses, immaculate metrical stanzas, and he just rolls them out in po- poetry instantly. Uh, and this is a talent that, um, you know, was part of, uh, of the uh, uh, folk tradition um, in India and in Southeast Asia, and I think in Europe too, you know, bards. Um, would would have this ability just you know you throw him a line he's just weave and immediately weave a poem out of it and the Buddha could do that um, and people like Ajahn Mun was a, they had this spontaneous singing Ajahn Mun was one of the forest great forest teachers and he used to be what's called a Morlam singer which is it's like a sparring contest you know you, you'd sing some somebody throw you a line you sing this you make up a song. And then you, you use it in a contest to see who could make the best songs, and you almost have a uh, like a almost a, uh, like a, a contest. Yeah. Um, and the Buddha was very gifted in these respects. Um, but uh, the point of the the art really was, I suppose, you know, the purpose of, of it. He said, "Don't, don't." He was, he wasn't keen on people just sort of pure pop music sort of stuff which just music or versifying it was always weaving around meaning weaving around meaning and that's part of the of the vigor of the chitta when it has withdrawn from entanglement being caught up with then you've got the capacity to play to play it you can play with things, but don't get stuck. You know, you know, you can end up getting too caught up in your own creations, and and that will always withdraw to that cool, steady place. And then you look for what's needed. You come forward when it's needed. You come back when it's not needed. You come forward when it's appropriate, when it's invited, and you step back. So you're always like a, you know, you've got that light on your feet aspect in life and in your mind. So you might pretty well just sit. Sometimes you just sit and listen. Say nothing. The disciple would say, well, well, shouldn't you, what about that? Didn't you see that? He said, you didn't ask me. You know, somebody's doing something that seems off and the disciple says to the Buddha look Lord he's doing that he says yeah but he hasn't asked me I'll wait yeah. so then find the time so he's not just blathering person finds it very difficult to reflect on the depths of human cruelty without the jitter getting depressed and the gloom seems to sink in at a cellular level in the body Perhaps my practice isn't strong enough to dispel this entrenched sense of darkness. Mm. I wonder if this undercurrent of heavy-heartedness isn't somewhat unavoidable if one is truly aware of the damage 
human beings are inflicting on other sentient beings? Well, you know, you've got to get a strong keel for your boat in this in this sangsara. <laughs> Otherwise, you tip over. You know, you've got to get a strong keel. Uh, and then you know the storms come, but you don't tip over. Mm. You know, and sometimes you've got to take your sail down and just weather. Mm. So a practitioner has to moderate, you know, because if you uh, to moderate what they give attention to, I would suggest. Because uh, you know, if you if your jitter isn't strong enough, you've got to strengthen it. There's no point in just getting depressed about human cruelty. Isn't going to change it. So you turn towards human goodness. Is that too human virtue, human healing? You know, follow the good. Follow those who give themselves for the welfare of others, tune into that quality in the human domain and linger in it and be touched by it and drink it in, get strong and touch into that in yourself, which is sensitive. But sensitivity needs that, that spinal axis, that groundedness, that keel. And this isn't something that you can just Getting the finger snap, you've got to do it, you've got to build it up over time. This is both a matter of finding the, the strong points and the bright points in yourself, in others, in Kalyanamitta. It's not just your problem, it's not that just that you'll get overwhelmed, we all get overwhelmed, I'm sure. Uh, if you look at some of the miserable things that human beings do. This is why we have Kalyanamita, to get the sense of there's a network and there's the goodness and drink that in and to get, to get the strength up. So get your energy system a little more associated with benevolent forces because goodness is not just a, an idea or a moral approval, it's, a, it's an energy to it. You know, uh, the, goodness has got a subtle, well, I keep saying it, heart energy, you know. It's not just that was good rather than bad. It, it's not a value judgment. It's actually that you touch into the quality of, of virtue, goodness, generosity, kindness, compassion, and so forth. You can't touch that without feeling something bright occurring. You talk about the dark, well that's called the evil, cruel. That's got an energy to it. You can feel it in your body. As you talked about it, you know, the weight of it, the darkness. Then similarly the light has got a particular quality to it. And it's a certain brightening and invigorating. You know, take more of that. Until, you know, when that the jitter has strengthen then awareness becomes more it's got a kind of a, something that supports it so you because your awareness at first is easily affected easily sensitized 
So you want to get that awareness based on that foundation, then it can expand and you can see the, as the Buddha certainly saw horrible things, um, you know, descriptions in the scriptures are pretty chilling, you know, people getting their heads ripped off by kings and criminals getting flayed alive and boiled in pots and stuff like that. Uh, it wasn't like any less cruel. <laughs> in fact, it was right out in the open as well. And we, we might, some people say, we've actually got a bit better as a species, just that, unfortunately, the toys we play with now have got a whole lot more power to them than just a sword. Um, so we look at the, the cherishing of, of life that does occur. It wasn't until... What, 100 years ago, we started protecting animals. We didn't protect animals before. We didn't create wildlife reserves before. We shot them. <laughs> so you have the whole charities devoted to looking after badgers. <laughs> and, and why not? <laughs> you got, you know, and hedgehogs in Britain got a hedgehog a bat trust that looks after bats you've got a bat in your house you can't do anything about it if you want to move it you've got to phone up the local bat officer who comes around and tries to invite the bat to go somewhere else I think it's rather sweet really so these, I find these things kind of uplifting uh, okay so Sure, you know, you know, horrible things happen, but the life of one bat is one. For that bat, that's significant. Get some mudita for that and enjoy it, appreciate it. You know, and then you can actually see all these things with a sense of sober, sober sadness, you might say, like, how regretful. And uh, the beings are so lost, uh, how regretful. Mm. and how can I help but getting depressed isn't part of the package so person's commenting on clinging to opinions our image of ourself of how things are in the world and you commented to how this keeps us from realising how things really are but on page 326 <laughs> of the commentary on the heart of compassion there's a comment on the third kind of diligence describing it as the diligence that cannot be stopped the insatiable energy to work constantly for the sake of others I found this disconcerting coming as it does from prescribed reading I'm not familiar with this commentary but I don't see a conflict there Insatiable energy does sound a little bit uh, kind of rabid, but I think it's just a kind of inspired poetic way of saying you know you you you're not clinging to an opinion. You just have a heart that really wishes to bring forth goodness and serve and help others, and it's not not clinging to a view. It's just a natural and encouraged, perhaps somewhat kind of inspired in this particular utterance to generosity and 
kindness and compassion and sharing Dhamma. When I look more seriously at the body, it does not seem repulsive. This person is talking about what's called asupa kamatana, often translated as the repugnant or unattractive or downright repulsive aspects of the body. This person saying, well, I don't think the body's that repulsive. (laughs) In fact, I find it more and more amazing, incredible design. All 32 parts seem brilliant. So, this is, so there's this super, they, they've got this recitation of 30 part, two parts of the body. Um, and some of them aren't that great, like pus, and isn't that, I mean, I don't think anybody's ever admired pus. <laughs> Bio synovial fluid which is the oil I think the fluid between the joints membranes, mesentery which is the stuff around the gut. they are um, not things that we normally find attractive but yeah the body does breathe by itself digest by itself and so on and the, me- the mechanism and it is that's one way of looking at it you know we can look at it as an incredibly sensitive um, system metabolism but the nature of a super kamatama, super means not beautiful. Ah, super, super beautiful. And people can kind of amplify that to foul, disgusting, um, and repugnant, but not attractive. I think I just stay with that. And the purpose of a super kamatama is that people don't always look at a body as an amazing assembly of metabolism. Sometimes they look at it as an object of sexual desire. Um, so, you know, yeah, if you're looking at the body as an amazing organic system that respires and, and breathes and relaxes and grows, it is pretty amazing. But that isn't the way that people always look at it. You know, people look at it in terms of, well, vanity you know, or anxiety. I don't look good enough. I'm not a very attractive body. Or, wow, she's got an attractive body or he's got an attractive body. And then this kind of glow that is in which is a sort of drugging effect. Uh, the mind is just fascinated uh, by this projection of, of attraction. What are you going to get out of it? You know, uh, essentially, it's not the body you want; you it's the feeling you want. You know, the body's getting hold of that body is going to give you a feeling. It's the feeling you want, really, and you imagine. You know, it's going to be associated with that body. And, of course, terrible things get done through that through that link. People get raped, um, sexual abuse, very, very common. You know, either criminal rape or domination or, you know, sexual misconduct, abuse, um, violating children. Stuff you just don't really have you put in your mind. Uh, pornography, you know, so which um, I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm not not being prudish, but I think violating other people is not. I don't. Know, I think that's. <laughs> you know. Uh, that's not on. 
And what is that energy that does that? It's a kind of mesmerized, like a kind of mania, really. Uh, so then the idea is that when the, you, you want to get to that particular energy and keep terminating, because it it happens, you know, people do either gross sexual abuse or just constant hankering and longing and, you know, f- and, f- and people fondle that energy. You know, what pornography is about, just constantly inciting the energy and fondling and luxuriating in it. So you, the sense is that this is a potential that human beings have right across the planet. This is a potential that human beings have. So they're saying, well, look, you know, let's just get really clear about this. This, this body, if you look at it like that, you've got to kind of place something else that doesn't give any sign, any signal that would incite that energy. So that's what it's for. And often it's about your own body because there could be the sense of, you know, trying to look nice and look good and, you know, buffed up and, you know, sort of got a bit of, bit of glow there and, it's, you know, toned. <laughs> and then, or you got, you know, you've got your sharp suit on, you Duds and looking cool, and, and people do all sorts of stuff. I mean, the fashion industry for men and women is, is you know, a huge thing. <laughs> it's just a so then you say, Well, it's just a bag of meat. <laughs> I don't have problems with, with bags of meat. I mean, that's I'm not against it, but it, it does it just cuts out a lot of this kind of wrong direction of the mind. <laughs> If that's your problem. If it's not your problem, you don't need to do the practice. But it's good to just sort of... Because it can, you know, you start to worry whether you look nice or not. What can you do about it? (laughs) And most most people assume they're not attractive. Not good enough. You've got these incredible standards of um, perfect bodies that are presented that... Who, who, you know, very few people can have a body like like that, and you know, some of them don't even exist. They're just photographs that've been touched up. So people always get the feeling of oh, not good enough, inadequate. Better buy something, put some cream on, or pluck a few hairs out, or something like that. And just like, just give up, you know, relax. <laughs> So it's taking a weight off the mind. It's not supposed to be kind of, um, you know, I think sometimes calling the body foul is a bit bit of an intense translation. Admittedly, if you cut one open, they smell pretty bad. (laughs) But, um, you know, it's merely just this is actually assembly of Buddha City, like looking in a bag of, open up a bag, you see there's some rice and there's beans and there's peas, all these elements. It's, it's also not an identity with it. It's a number of things that have come together. It's not an identity. <laughs>